Welcome to the Grace Fellowship Church of Ephrata podcast. Our desire is to help you grow in your journey with Jesus, no matter where you are. For more information, please check out our website at www.gfchurch.net. We are going to have an awesome couple of weeks here in the prodigal son. I want to look at this story through a different lens. You know, it's funny how God works this because uh, I had planned out my sermons back in, it was about October of last year for the whole year, and uh, was not really thinking about the fact that I did Jonah, where you have a guy who's rebellious against God and walks away, and then God has to bring him back and repentance and all that. Now I'm doing the prodigal son, which is about a guy who's running away. It just, it's amazing how that happens. So God apparently led me to something he really wanted us all to understand or to get into our hearts. So uh, we're going to take a look at the prodigal son uh, for these next few weeks. Now, I want to start us off, since we are talking about Independence Day, and I have a few friends that are from England, which, by the way, they refer to it as Treason Day. Um, I, I, I thought we would start off our season and, uh, or our uh, series with uh, where we should start, and that is a conversation about Prince Harry. Let's start with England, okay? Wow, there's a lot of groans. Prince Harry. Uh, this past, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, which I could spend a whole sermon on her, but uh, Harry, I, we got to focus on him because here is a guy who is the son or grandson of the king of England. And yes, he doesn't exactly have uh, maybe the most direct way to possibly become the king one day, but he chooses to walk away from it all. This man can live in almost any castle in England. We have to pay for it, okay? He can go to any of them. He can just show up somewhere and everyone would go nuts because it's Prince Harry. This man has power. He has prestige simply because he was born into it. Prince Harry chooses to do what we as Americans always look highly upon, walk away and be your own man. And he decides to come with his wife to the United States and to buy a multi-million dollar mansion out in California. And uh, they go on to Netflix and they go on to Spotify and start doing podcasts. They're getting paid millions of dollars. But the problem is that there hasn't been a lot of substance. And lo and behold, over the last few weeks, uh, Netflix and a Spotify for their podcast has been saying, you know what, we're just going to break our contract. They're beginning to lose money. They still have a multi-million dollar mansion out in California, and they're whining and complaining about this because the money is drying up, and there's still bills to pay. And since he chose to walk away from royalty, from all the blessings of being the grandson of King Charles... He's starting to feel the weight of that. See where I'm going with this? If you know the story of the prodigal son, you know why this was the first person on my mind. Because we will see somebody do this exact same thing. Now, how many of you, if you were in Harry's uh, position, uh, would be more than happy to walk away from, you know, the castles, the prestige, the money, and all of that? Introverts, raise your hand. It's a joke. Introverts don't raise our hands. But some of us would actually be like, well, I'd be okay walking away from all that. Uh, But a lot of us would be like, are you kidding me? Come on. (laughs) I'd be on TV, talked about, and all the tabloids and all this. Come on. Who wouldn't want to be in the, the center of everything? But Harry walked away. 
The reality is, is many of us, if not all of us, know people that are in the process of doing this or are doing this. And I'm not talking about King Charles. I'm talking about King Jesus, that we know those who have walked away from all that comes with following Jesus, the hope, the mercy of God, the forgiveness, the love, the family that you have here at church, have chosen to walk away from it all, thinking that they'll be okay. We'll figure it out. We'll have a better plan. The prodigal son is a story of this. And we know that there are people who have walked away, and we need to see what God teaches us through the story. Now, I have to say this right up front. Uh, when you go to Bible college and seminary, they say be very careful with parables that Jesus told. Uh, parables are not allegories, okay? Allegories is like, uh, you know, some of these stories you grew up reading where every little detail of the story means something. And so you can sit there and, you know, with all the really intellectual people and sip tea with your pinky out and talk about, well, I think what this, you know, cat means in the story is this. And th that is not a parable. Parables had one very clear meaning. But there are things in it that we cannot just throw out and say they don't mean anything. We just saw the parable of the sower and the seeds a couple months ago. We saw that the four different seeds and soils and all of that, they did have distinct meanings because Jesus let us know about them. And, and I do believe that the parable of the prodigal son is the same. Let me say this right off. And this is a little teaser, okay, for this whole series. I don't know if the prodigal son is the right title for this parable. Because the prodigal, you will come to see over these next three weeks, I don't believe is the main character. I don't believe he's the main character of this whole story. That's not the point Jesus was trying to make. We will see the point he was trying to make in just two seconds. This is in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to have the verses up here on the screen. If you have a bulletin, there's a QR code there that will take you to you version. You can follow along with the notes and fill them out. I do encourage you to write notes down in the bulletin as well. Uh, if you got one, uh, that just helps you pay attention so you can remember things. We're going to take a look at this. We have to be careful with interpreting parables because there is one major message, and they are not allegorical. So we are going to start right at verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to the story of the prodigal son because this is really important right here. Verse 1 and 2, Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, and it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. This is not unusual. Jesus had something about him that sinful people just were attracted to. Is that true of you? Jesus drew sinful people to himself, and he never turned them away. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this is after he has already eaten with Zacchaeus, and they've been complaining about that, uh, you know, that he was eating. He was in the house of a tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed down upon by Israel because they were technically like sort of helping Rome that they saw as an oppressor over Israel, and yet they were still Jewish. So which side are you on here? We know that tax collectors used to overcharge people their taxes and keep the money for themselves, so they were often wealthy, but they were doing it over the Jewish people. 
So we now have in this, these two verses here, the audience. Jesus was going to tell these parables because he needed this audience to hear the message he was trying to get through. That means he needed the tax collectors to hear what he was trying to get through. He needed the sinners. He needed the Pharisees and the scribes to understand what he was about to do. He wasn't just saying, oh, hey, this is just fun stories I'm going to tell you. There was a point. At this time, the Pharisees are looking for a way to frame Jesus. They're, they're hanging on every word, hoping they can find something to get him arrested for. After verse 2, uh, he tells two parables that we're not going to spend time on right now, but here's the context of these parables. One is about sheep, one is about a lost coin. They're about things getting lost, being found, and the celebration that happens afterwards. Here Jesus is talking to tax collectors and sinners with the Pharisees and scribes saying when people are lost and they get found, there's a reason to celebrate. Heaven rejoices when people come to Jesus. It gets excited. That's why we like to cause parties in heaven. As a church, we need to be serious. We need to be the party planning committee here, okay? If we are truly, honestly about making disciples like all of us would say we are, then we should be causing parties in heaven. Because when the lost get found, heaven rejoices. And then he comes to our story that we are going to look at today. We get to verse 11, and it says this. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, I'm going to call this youngest son the delusional son. And I want to take you through seven different delusions. What were you thinking moments with him? Delusion number one we have is number one, he is the second born. The thing about the culture here, because we have to measure culture with this story. This was not written in 2023, okay? This was written in a time when there was a patriarchal culture where the father was the, the rooster in the house, and you do what he says, and if he's not there, who's up next? Firstborn son. He's the next one. Now you have the secondborn son, the youngest, going up to his father, which would have been appalling for the people hearing this, the Pharisees and the scribes and the tax collectors and sinners, because they know the family order. The family order is daddy, then oldest, this, who is this guy, okay? As the youngest in my family, I know how that feels. I'm joking. Beth and I have that argument often about uh, who has it worse, the oldest or the youngest. We're not going to have that this morning. We may have a split. Um, okay. Uh, so he was second born. He should never, never have been doing this. But delusion number two is he asks his dad for his inheritance. He asks his dad for his inheritance. He had no right as a secondborn to do this, and yet he did it anyway. The Old Testament was very, very rigid in making sure that inheritance would stay in the family. When it, uh, back in my house, I have a banjo, okay? Uh, it's my grandfather's banjo. It's in horrible shape. I really want to get it refinished one day. But this is a meaningful thing to us. This was my grandfather's, and I've shown it to my kids. I'm like, this is your great-grandfather's. He used to play this banjo in Maryland, and, 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 and I would tell him these stories. And I don't want to just go and give this to any schmo on the road. I want this to stay in my family. And the Old Testament wrote laws 
for the Jewish people that land, possessions, generational wealth, that was to stay in the family. It wasn't just to be treated like dirt. It has to stay in the family. This young man asks for his inheritance, this generations of accrued uh, inheritance. Why on earth would he want to do it? Well, we know this story. Most of us know this story. Charles Dickens talked about this being one of the greatest stories ever written. He wanted to do it to sow his wild oats. Now, we live in Lancaster County. There's another word for this. Roomspringa. There we go. I didn't even have to say a roomspringa, if you don't know what that is. Uh, in the Amish community, this is at age 16. You're allowed to see, are you going to commit to the church for the rest of your life? Or are you going to go live like the English? Okay? Uh, this is not uncommon in cultures where you have to make a decision. Follow God or live for yourself. Uh, so this boy wanted to go on his own little roomspringa here. He wanted to live it up in the moment. We get that he's probably a single guy. He doesn't have a wife and kids. He is free and off. Delusion number three for him, though, is he insults his father. There's a number of ways that he insulted his father in this, some of which you may have heard, some of which you may not have thought about. Again, original context here. For him to ask his father for his inheritance, inheritance was only to be given at the point of death. For him to ask for his inheritance is for him to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give it to me now. I don't care about you. I don't love you. Give it. That's the number one insult that he does to his father. And by law, just so you know, this father would have the right, because that's an insult, to take his son into the town square and to smack him in front of everybody. Culturally, this is what they did when someone would be in, uh, uh, publicly humiliated or humiliated by a child. I know some say, man, I wish that was still in effect. It's not, and it's not a good choice. But uh, this is what the father could have done. He could have said, oh, really? Let's go to the town square, and I'm going to let everybody know what kind of son you are. Not only that, but oftentimes in this culture, the dad could have cut him off at that point and said, you are dead to the family and go into the process of shunning. They often would read the burial rites to the child saying, you are dead to us. But the father doesn't do that. The father does something else. The father actually divides the inheritance and gives him and his brother, don't forget that, what he asked for. He could have claimed managerial status and say, hey, you can't spend a dime of it without me okaying it because I'm still alive. But he doesn't. He says, here you go. Now, uh, pause for a moment before we go to verse 13. Remember the original audience. The Pharisees are hearing this. How do you think the Pharisees are feeling about this kid right now? The, the Pharisees made sure they did all the right laws. They washed their hands the right way. They made sure that they ate, you know, if they had to give an offering, they would count like every little kernel of corn that they were offering to make sure they did the right number. How do you think they feel about this kid, good or bad? Yeah, yeah. They can't stand it. They're like, oh, let me at this kid, man. I'm going to find him. What's his name? Where does he live? Keep this in mind. Verse 13 goes on. says this. Uh, verse 13, uh, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
couple days later, he decides, okay, time to party. Got the inheritance, got what I asked for. But don't miss this. When it comes to the words there, gathered all he had. This brings us to delusion number four. Because delusion number four is he liquidated generational inheritance. The word in the Greek there literally means he sold all of that generational inheritance that he had just been given. Yes, the Afghan that his great-great-great-great-great-grandmother had made, and yes, this from his dad and all this, and he sold it for whoever would buy it for cash. And most likely did not get the money back that it was worth. If somebody's selling off his family's generational heirlooms and so on, question, does that mean he still wants anything to do with that family? No. We would be offended. How dare you? Do you know what you just sold? He liquidates all of his inheritance. Hundreds of years. Gone. Why? So he could have cash. You may say, what kind of person would do this? Well, recently this happened. Many of you know the pastor, Charles Stanley, who passed away about a month and a half ago. And this made the internet. Some of you may have heard of this, some of you may not. One of his grandsons, after he died, and it wasn't long after he died, it was like two, three weeks after he died, began to go online and try to sell some of Charles Stanley's Bibles that had been signed by like one of the presidents. He was selling pictures of him, a watch, all of this generational stuff that had significance within the Stanley family, this grandson tried to sell. And why? I got bills to pay, was his answer. Now, this got shut down. The family approached him, and it stopped. But I'm like, oh, my goodness. That's exactly what this prodigal is doing here. He's liquidating things that should be precious generationally precious is his family, and he's trying to do it just for cash. He just wanted money. That's all he wanted. He wrote off his legacy with this family. Delusion number five is that he lived amongst Gentiles. Gentiles. It says that he goes off into a far country. Whenever it says he goes off into a far country, that's implying he went beyond Israel. Now he's with the Gentiles. Did the Gentiles want to live in the midst, or excuse me, did the Jews want to live in the midst of the Gentiles, yes or no? No. The Pharisees are pulling their hair out at this point. Oh my goodness, this guy's selling off all this stuff. He's breaking away with the family, generational wealth sold, disrespecting his father. Now he's living amongst the Gentiles. For real, what is this kid's problem? Let me at him. We're going to bring back corporal punishment here. Capital punishment, he's dead. Uh, there's no way this kid should be allowed to live. The Pharisees were incensed that this kid had given up on his home, his name, his heritage, and his faith. Please don't miss that. The Pharisees are hearing this and getting ticked off. Delusion number six, he wasted his money. The verse uh, 13 said that he squandered his property in reckless living. In fact, the word prodigal, some of your versions may use that in verse 13. Prodigal means wasteful. The wasteful son. He blew it all. He's giving money out. He's partying with the biggest. He's renting out the biggest places. He's got the finest wine. He's got women there and so on. You know how that goes. This man was living in what we used to say 10 years ago when I was in youth ministry, YOLO which stands for, you only live once. 
if you're older than that. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Same idea. Seize the day. This is it. Live for today. Who cares about anything else? He blew through his money carelessly and without a plan. He didn't care. Back when I was a youth pastor, um, I went and was taking my kids to a Christian concert festival. And uh, one, uh, he was a sixth grader, came. It was his first ever youth event. And we were going to be two days. We were going and traveling. And uh, his parents said, okay, here's $50. You can maybe get a T-shirt. That's for your meals for the weekend and so on. So we start on our trek to this concert. And uh, we stopped to get uh, food somewhere, and uh, we stopped, and there was a Walmart there. And uh, the kids were like, hey, can we walk around Walmart? Sure, whatever. So we walk around Walmart, and uh, then we get back into the van, and here comes a sixth grader like this. And there is nerds. There is uh, pixie sticks. Uh, there is all forms of sugar. Uh, and, and I'm like, how much did you pay for all that? $45 which means he has $5 for four more meals and he ain't getting a t-shirt. This kid squandered it. When it came to the mealtime, I ended up having to pay for this kid's meals. Parents pay me back later. But uh, because he, like this prodigal, was like, I've got money. Yes, blow it on what I want. Freedom. He's freaking out and he's, and he's just spending. And that's what this prodigal does. He goes nuts. He spends all his money on what he wants to do. Dad's not there to tell me. I cut myself off from them. He wastes his money. See, here's the thing. Sin is irrational. It promises us a reward. We think we're going to have a reward. But it gives no permanent happiness. It basically gives us a sugar rush when we sin. Ooh, I got away with it. Yes, I got to live it up for a moment. But the long-term consequences never pay off. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now, we read this as Americans, a severe famine. Oh, that sounds awful. To the original audience, when you hear famine, that says a couple things. One, they would gasp because they are not far removed from famines in their history. Two, they saw a famine as the judgment of God. Isn't it interesting? He spends all of his stuff after he's insulted people and so on, and now God brings judgment. He has nothing left. No one he knows has anything left. A famine is a horrible thing. The famines uh, throughout history have been caused by insects eating up crops. It's been hailstorms. Uh, uh, another nation comes and, and lays siege upon you. We know some of the horrible things that come with it. Uh, recently, Beth and I, uh, we were watching a documentary on PBS. It was a two-parter. We don't watch PBS normally, but this one's wanting, something I wanted to know more about. And it was on the Irish potato famine. I don't know if you know much about the Irish potato famine. It's only 150 years ago. It was horrible. It was horrible. People were selling their children so they could feed the other children. And they were selling them all sorts of deplorable things. They were selling children for mercy that they would give them to a richer person or somebody that had food so their kids could eat because they couldn't feed them. Throughout human history, famines have led to things such as cannibalism. Famines, they, people eating dirt, rotting food. It's horrible. 
we hear famine as Americans, and since we really haven't had anything, we had the Depression, and that was really bad. But we haven't seen anything compared to what a famine truly is. We know that over three years in the Irish potato famine, a million people died. 10% of the nation's population died of starvation. Some would sell themselves out into slavery at, at poor houses where they're beaten like slaves. They barely get anything to eat. Deplorable conditions, many of them infected with disease and everything. So when it says a famine came upon the land, it's not like, oh, there was a couple weeks where they didn't have a lot of food. Like we experienced at the end of COVID with the whole supply chain thing. No, that's nothing compared to what a famine is. And this hits at this moment. He has nothing left. And even his friends don't care because they don't have much left. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out uh, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything because they didn't have anything except for maybe the ultra-wealthy He goes and hires himself out. And this is delusion number seven. Delusion number seven is he enslaved himself to a foreigner. He enslaved himself to a foreigner. Yes, a Gentile, but it is very possible with the words that are used here that this may have been a Roman living in Gentile territory, and that would have been even more deplorable. You would employ yourself to a foreigner? And it would have been deplorable because he could have gone home at this moment. But rather than going home, because I am going to dig in, I'm an independent, I'm making myself. I am Prince Harry. I'm going to make it on my own. He enslaves himself, which is incredibly demoral. And to a Gentile, he does this. There's no security, by the way, in the position that he gets. In fact, uh, this is delusion number eight. He lives amongst pigs. He doesn't just feed them. He lives among them. Uh, Those that were pig farmers in this culture often were those who were physically unable to do any kind of work or more importantly, those that were mentally unable to do work. This is why we see Jesus when he cast demons out of one man that went into pigs. He was living in that uh, pigsty, literally, living amongst the pigs. Those that worked with pigs were considered day labor. They would not get to go back to the home of their owner and be able to eat and taken care of in a nice warm bed. No, they stayed with the pigs. How many of you love the smell of pigs? I like the smell of pigs after I've smoked them at 250 for about eight hours. Then I like pigs or bacon, okay? Uh, pigs are horrible. I, it, it, the scent is horrible. And he is now living, sleeping, feeding them. Pig slop, so you know, is extremely unclean. Pigs, as we know in Jewish culture, guess what? The Pharisees are there and they're listing. They've got, we got eight things against this guy already. Now he's with an unclean animal. We know in Jewish culture it is viewed as an unclean animal. And now he's living with them. He's living with them. He wants to eat their food. It's extremely unclean and awful. Slop that they are fed is just leftovers, rotting food, and pigs will eat anything. uh, Go back up. Uh, I'm not ready for that one yet. But uh, slop, give you a little bit of a story of this that I just saw recently. Las Vegas um, is known for its food buffets. Okay, uh, you go there and you pay like a ridiculously cheap price and you just can eat and eat and eat. I mean, it's shady maple on steroids everywhere. 
which means that there's a lot of leftover food. And for a long time, they had a a hard uh, decision to make about what they do with this food. So they began to ship it out to pig farmers, hours outside of Las Vegas. So they would get all this leftover food in trucks, in the hot sun, they're driving out to these pig fields, and then they boil it all together to kill any bacteria, and then they just put it out in troughs. Boy, that sounds appetizing. And this is slop. It's disgusting. And pigs will just scarf it down and make a mess. That's why they call it a pigsty, or what you call your kid's bedroom a pigsty. Okay? It says here that he wanted to eat the pods that the pigs ate. Now, this is a little interesting thing. The word here for pods in Greek actually tells you what kind of pods it is, and you just saw it a moment ago. These are called carob pods. Anybody done carob chips? It's like a weight loss thing. It's about the only usable thing with carob is this powder that they can get out of it. The rest of it is basically inedible. He is so hungry, he's ready to eat something that's inedible. He wasn't going to sit there and make carob chips, which tastes like a chocolate substitute. Uh, He was ready to eat things that his body would not properly digest. That's how desperately hungry he was. Now, the Pharisees would be sitting there saying, finally hit rock bottom. The only thing short of this guy now is just to die and burn in the infernos of hell. That's all he deserves anyway. Good Good that this is happening to him. He's scum. And this is the moment where things begin to change. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of the fathers or how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I am perishing with hunger. Finally, this young man who has been acting impractical, he has no plan other than I want to spend money and have a good time. He finally wakes up. For the first time you see him make a rational decision, and for the first time, possibly in his life, he says, You know what? Thinking back to home, my dad actually really took good care of his servants. I never thought about that before, but I am now because my stomach's telling me I need to do some deep introspection. And he has a moment where all of a sudden he considers how his father treated his hired servants and thinks, I may die here with hunger. There has got to be something I can do. And verse 18, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What we see here is the true spirit of repentance. We saw this in Nineveh a couple weeks ago. We saw this when the king of Nineveh falls on his knees and says, maybe God will have mercy on us. Everybody, sackcloth and ashes. Your pets, your cattle, they need sackcloth too. Maybe. I hope that God will have mercy on me. And you see that with this young man. It's true repentance because he says, I know I've sinned. Jonah did not do that. I know I've sinned. And I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy, Father, to be called your son. I get it. I don't deserve anything. Just treat me. I'm begging you. At the very least, treat me as one of your servants. This young man doesn't expect mercy, but he didn't like his condition, and he knew he was wrong, and he decided to change things. Now, the Pharisees at this moment, and I leave this for next week, the Pharisees were already incensed at this guy. They wanted him dead. But the Pharisees at this moment 
would also be potentially incensed that they see where Jesus is going with this story and say, oh no, there better not be any way this father takes this guy back. Mm-mm. He deserves nothing. He is rotten. He deserves nothing. He's unclean. And maybe that's the point, as we will see over the next two weeks. Verse 20, we'll just start with the first part, says, and he arose and came to his father, and we'll stop right there. He goes home. How humiliating that would have to be. How humbling that would have to be to say, I blew everything. I sold everything. I blew it all. I've been living amongst pigs and Gentiles. The one thing that makes this unique compared to the other two parables before it is in the other two parables, uh, something was lost and the person went out to go find it. In this case, something different happens. Did the father go out to find him? Yes or no? No. Did the father uh, list 25 reasons why he should stay? Did the father go to where he was in Gentile lands and said, hey, why don't you come on home? You see a pattern here? See a pattern? Because my point this morning is this, and this may be hard for some of us. Letting go is not giving up. Here's what I mean. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands how many of you know someone who is a prodigal, someone who is defying God, someone who's turning their back on God. That's a prodigal, whether they knew him before or they didn't at all. We all know them. I have family members that are them. I say this as a youth pastor and, and very painful to me. I have students that I invested time, effort, energy, money into that I've seen say, eh, and walk away. The balance for us is to figure out when do I keep pushing forward and when do I let go? And for some of us, that may sound like blasphemy that we would even let go. And what I mean by let go is this is not uncommon throughout Scripture. Even Paul talks about the fact that if a person is in sin and they are truly unrepentant, let the devil have them and cut them off until they can see where it goes. There may be a prodigal in our life that we've been desperately, desperately, just every time we see him, we pound 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 him. And they get harder and harder and harder. And there's sometimes, and this is not to be done without prayerful, prayerful times that we say, I will not do that anymore. I will not do it anymore. I'm going to love them. I am going to pray for them. If they show up on my doorstep, I'm going to care for them. But I will not pound them over the head anymore telling them how awful they are, how rotten they are. I am going to choose mercy. I'm going to let them. I know the road that they're walking where that's going to end up but I want them to feel their consequences because I know where it goes. doesn't mean it's easy for us. If it's a child that you have, it doesn't make it easy that you let them feel their consequences. Sometimes we have to. When I was serving in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, I had a um, father there. He had a son who was just graduating high school, and he was his prodigal. And uh, his son one night did reckless driving, so reckless that the cops took him in. And that night he calls home and he tells his dad, Dad, I'm in jail. Can you come get me out? And his dad said he did the hardest thing he ever did. He said no. And the reason he said no is he had bailed him out at other times and it was not getting through. And so he said, you need to feel the weight of this. He went and got his son the next day out. Uh, He was released 
his son sat in the car. And he said that the first thing I just looked at him, I said, that was kind of dumb, wasn't it? And he wasn't doing it to do a dig. He was doing it to say, everything I've been telling you, everything I've been warning you about, I've been covering for you long enough. You need to feel this decision. Letting go is not giving up on a person. Reality is you may know a prodigal in your life, and it seems like there is no way they're ever going to come back home. They're never going to come back to Jesus. They're never going to come to Jesus if they've never ever, they're just hardened to him. They'll never come home. I say this to many of you who have, I, I know have prodigals. The last chapter has not been written on their life. There is hope. We may not see it in our lifetime. It may be after we're gone. But we must never lose hope. God is all about changing lives. And there's no reason that your prodigal has no hope. God can change hearts still. I hope that we will pray about how we interact with the prodigal. The prodigal's in our life. Whether they've never known Jesus or whether they knew Jesus and they walked away, we all know them. My challenge for us at the end of this service, uh, as you all are being dismissed, I have paper up here and I have pens. I'm going to ask you to write one name on each piece of paper and there's 100 pieces, so if we have more than that, I'll desperately quickly run to the office and get more. Uh, but if you've got to write two on, that's fine too. But I want you to think of who your prodigal is. Because through this series, I want this to be up here as a reminder of who we are praying for. And I want us to be praying for the names that are in this jar. We don't have to pull them out and read each name and see, ooh, who'd you put in? Why'd you put me down? Uh, no, uh, you don't have to do that. This is a visual reminder that we may need to let go, but it doesn't mean we're giving up on them. We commit them to their consequences, but we know that God can change them. And we will pray to that end. So let's pray. And uh, we're going to wrap up our service, uh, and then you can do that at uh, the end. God, um, I know for a season of my life I was a prodigal to my parents. I did what I wanted. I thought I knew better. I turned my back on you. In rebellion, I thought I knew it all. And we know many in this same uh, life decision here this morning. Lord, I ask for the prodigal that you've laid on our heart, the one that has turned from you, the one that maybe at one time had the glimmer of Jesus in their eyes, but now will not even darken the doorstep of a church or open a Bible or even have a rational conversation, the ones that are becoming seemingly harder and harder against you. God, I ask that you would lead us to what you want us to do how you want us to handle them. Lord, should we let go a bit? Or should we push in and keep pushing in? We need you to lead us to what you want us to do. Father, I ask this. I ask for the prodigal that you would begin, even in this moment, to be working in their hearts, calling them home. That you would begin to uh, prick their hearts, that uh, there would be some life that would begin to come out and a desire to come home to you. And God, do not let even the person that has the hardest prodigal in this building give up hope because there's always hope where you're involved. We ask all of this in your name because we know you can do it. Father, if there's anyone here who is that prodigal, 
who has hardened against you, who has tuned you out, who has walked away from you, Lord, I ask that even now you would bring them home, that you would show them that you are waiting for them. You will welcome them home. You don't care about what they did in the past. You just are glad they're there and there is forgiveness. That today would be the day they would decide enough is enough. It's time for me to go home. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. If you would like prayer, you can send your prayer requests into prayer at gfchurch.net and we will pray for you. If you like this message, don't forget to subscribe on the podcast app, Google or Spotify. Give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next week.